Hi everyone, thanks for checking out this interview. My name is Fahad and I'm your host. And today I have a very special guest, uh, Fatma Al-Mohamed. Uh, Fatma is the CEO of African Brand Warrior and she's uh, an African and a Kenyan. Uh, she uh, leads the uh, African Brand Warrior is a marketing and communication consulting agency that is committed to make African brands uh, make impact in African communities. She also uh, holds uh, seats on different boards, including uh, being chair of agribusiness sector for Association of Ghana Industries. Uh, she's a board on a board. Uh, she's a board member of Cotton Board uh, Ghana, representing AGI. Uh, Council of Patrons uh, for Oil, Palm Development of Ghana, uh, Regional Director Africa for Nation Nations of Women, uh, Queen Mother uh, for Loyal Palace of Mimia, Ghana. So if I go on talking about uh, her achievements, it can take like 30 minutes to an hour. So I will stop and we'll learn more about her as we go through this interview. Uh, Fatma, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Fahad, for having me. Pleasure is mine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we connect via LinkedIn, and uh, I, I was so honored that you accepted my invitation to do an interview with you. Um, hope people are going to get a lot from this interview. So before we start um, to get into questions, can, we want to learn about who you were before you started helping these brands and, and, and becoming a thought leader. Um, and, uh, you know, ha having like this voice for African and African brands, like who, who, who was Fatma growing up? Where were you born? Uh, give us like a backstory of, of your, your childhood life. Um, okay. I was born into a very humble um, family. I had, my dad passed away a few years back. Um, um, I have a mom and um, I have a sister who lives in London, a brother um, who has been transferred to Egypt. So my brother and his family and mother are in lockdown in Egypt. Uh, can't wait to know when you know the world opens so I can see, see my family. Um, I grew up in Kenya, in Nairobi. Um, educated in Kenya and then moved on and edu was educated in London, did my university in London. Um, I came back to Kenya um, and I got into the world of advertising, even though my background is actually law and psychology. Um, and then came in and then decided to do another degree in marketing. Um, and what came out of it was that I just loved the feel of marketing. Um, and also because of having background in psychology, it helped me to start understanding people and, you know, why do they do what they do? Um, we know that as human beings, you know, we're always surrounded by truth, evil, um, fakeness, reality, various things. Um, and in the process of working with brands and trying to understand, it's sort of like discovering, it's like an onion, you know, you keep pulling out layers and layers to get to the core. What I loved was that I'm the kind of person I can walk into any room and I will speak to whoever it is. Um, I don't care whether you're a president of a nation or whatever, I have no fear. Um, I walk in and I just say things, you know. Uh, so sometimes a lot of people are like, Fatima, how, how, how can you just do that? And I'm like, if you're true to yourself, um, you're able to walk into any place and it, that's where authenticity comes from. And that ties in also to what a brand does. Um, so from working with the marketing agency, um, I then ended up uh, working on different brands with Young and Rubicam. Uh, 
and Young and Rubicam is a global advertising agency. Um, with them, I worked on tire, I worked on milk, so you can talk to me about clinker, you can talk to me about tires, I was working with Firestone in Retread, you can talk to me about um, planes, you can talk to me about cooking fat and cooking oil, you know, been there, done that, um, and moved on where one of my clients, which was Bitco, took me over, they are Africa's, well, I'd say now as Africa's, they initially at that time were East Africa's um, biggest, I would call it, uh, multinational because it was the only African homegrown um, company uh, playing in various categories in terms of home and personal care and food um, and joined in with them and started the integrated marketing communication department uh, because it was all about integrating what marketing and communication was about and working with the different facets of the business. Um, from then I was uh, transferred to Uganda uh, lived in a village at the time which is now an amazing place called Jinja um, I set up uh, and as part of the team, the, the, the factory um, in, in uh, Jinja, also at the oil palm plantation, where I remember I used to get, uh, you know, this is the thing sometimes as being a female, it's not that it's thrown on us, but we sort of come in multi multifaceted. So all my directors, you know, were all these men and uh, nobody thought about where food was coming from. So we used to travel to um, Kalangala Island, which used to take us God. To get to the site itself, which takes take us at least five hours, you know, from the ferry to the road to whatever. Um, there are no hotels, there's no electricity, there's no place to sleep. But here is Fatima. What do I do? I go into the market and I go and buy tomatoes, onions, um, noodles, whatever, whatever. Um, nobody ever said I needed to do that. Um, but I just knew that we had to eat and uh, I had to figure out how we're going to do this. So I would take, you know, cooking pots and everything and cook breakfast, lunch, dinner for my directors, you know, um, and uh, we survived. Um, then obviously lived, um, you know, through Uganda, having to work in the various markets. I did Burundi, Rwanda, um, Congo, Southern Sudan. I mean, my favorite was um, flying into Southern Sudan and having all these guys with guns, you know, facing um, the plane. And then as soon as you land, um, it's just this little cubicle with, a wall um, that has a hole broken in and they throw your bags, um, you know, and you live in a tent and you used to, um, it was tented uh, hotels and we live in that and uh, prefab and bathrooms. So when I sit and look at where I have come from, my journey has been amazing because then from Uganda, I was transferred to West Africa. Um, I was asked to look at, um, you know, Ivory Coast. So I was hanging Ivory Coast for a year, um, made amazing friends there. Um, and then when it was time to move with my daughter, I felt, okay, it might make more sense to move to Ghana because of the language, you know, having to start from scratch in terms of speaking French um, for my daughter, not that it was going to be a problem. And it was sort of a blessing in disguise. And that's why I believe, uh, you know, when you have, a, you have small problems, but a bigger God, I'm a firm believer in God. Um, it just so happened uh, when I moved to Ghana within uh, a span of a short time when the Bagbo um, situation happened, I lost very close friends and colleagues uh, were murdered in that period. So there was a reason as to why I needed to be in Ghana and not um, Ivory Coast. Um, came in, set up, um, worked for one of the largest organizations called Wilma International. Um, they're the number one in the world in terms of agri-business. Um, set up an edible oil refinery, uh, built the brand, got 80% market share, reached a point, and then you ask yourself, what next, you know, um, and I've been blessed to work on brands and build them to number one. I'm a no nonsense uh, on that. I believe if there was a way my shoes would tell stories about places that gone, people they've spoken to in markets and then 
uh, feeling the pulse, then my shoes will tell a story. Um, so I quit and um, decided what next. And I remember I cried for two days for what I cried because I was on two digit, um, initial two digit um, dollar salary per month. And to give that up, um, I cried and I was like, hell, what is going to happen? You know? Um, and then from that African brand warrior was started. Um, and I think within a week of just setting it up, I got, um, in fact, one of the biggest, uh, it was a, a guy that um, I was consulting with out of South Africa. And they gave me the opportunity to work with McDonald's um, at the time. And obviously it was part of their, their business and what they were doing. Uh, and I thought, hey, wait a second, if this can come in, then it means every other business can come in. So I won't mention the businesses that I currently consult with or do stuff for, um, but I'm just very blessed to have a client base that have believed in the third eye um, of what I am able to bring onto the table. Um, African Brand Warrior is about a battlefield. It's about um, no, no bloodshed. It's about going to that battlefield and making a brand, being able to stand up. One, as an African, it has to be African-born. It has to understand the African consumer. Um, and it has to be able to lift society up. It's about having a brand with a purpose. So it's not about just coming and telling a consumer that they've got to buy this. They need to know what you're doing for them and how are you lifting them up in their lives to also be a part of your brand community. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. Oh, that's that's amazing. You've done a lot of work. That That is a, just a little glimpsy. Um, <laughs> there are many other things I've left out, but yeah. Yeah, uh, thank, thank you for giving us that story. Um, and that, that that's great. Can we talk a little bit more about uh, African Brand Warrior, uh, like the services you provide. I know you talked about the uh, clients you serve, um, but. Let me tell I you why African Brand Warrior was born. Yeah. Um, I've worked in the advertising agency field in, in terms of marketing communications. I've worked on a client side. And one of the things that I've realized and um, what one of the things you're gonna get used to is that I say things as it is. Um, um, I, I, I don't. Um, I, I don't, um, I'm not diplomatic in certain things. Um, one of the challenges is that a lot of times clients like to blame the advertising agencies when um, numbers don't come in, you know, oh, because this campaign didn't work, you didn't explain this right, your um, advert was not perfect, you know, the label that you did for us was not great. Um, what they don't understand is that a lot of times it's what communication is being given out from businesses to the communication agencies. Okay, now you also have within your communication, uh, within your business and, and manufacturing or, you know, uh, marketing businesses, a little hold back um, because leaders and, you know, people in the board, um, directors, um, people within the C-suite try not to share a lot of information with people down the line in businesses. There's this secrecy, you know, of the numbers and what are the volumes being done or what is the pricing, what is the cost? So what happens is then when the people down the line don't have the full information, they tend to also give out only half-baked information. Okay, so they will they'll probably brief that this is what our market share is because maybe a research company has come and given them the feedback on that, or they'll pick third-party information because everybody wants to make themselves look good. Nobody's really going to say, hey, listen, we're suffering, we're losing consumers, um, you know, uh, we're being trolled, there's no information, or my company doesn't give me the information that I need. 
So what happens is that the information that goes out to the communication agencies is, is um, only an iota of the bigger picture. So obviously what they're going to craft is based on what you've given them, okay? The second angle is that also from the communication angle, uh, most of them are just communicators. These are not people who are into strategy. They really don't break down brands and consumers and understand what makes them tick or ask the right questions um, to their clients. So I saw an opportunity there of, wait a second, you know, um, I have been blessed to work for great organizations, whether it was Young Rubicon, whether it was Bitco, whether it was Wilma, where I was a hands-on person. You talk to me today about a jerrycan. I can tell you how a jerrycan's made. I can tell you what is a one-ply, what's a three-ply. You talk to me about cartons. I can tell you how cartons are made. Um, I know about packaging. I know about the printing process. So I've been blessed to learn all that and also want to learn. So that means that I can be the perfect fit to go into a business um, from a strategic part and say, hey, wait a second, you know, the current line is producing X, Y, Z, but have you thought of an opportunity that if you did X, you could probably increase uh, volumes or you could actually change um, the, the line that you're in? Um, let's look at it from a market uh, perspective, so outside in, and also let's look at inside out. What is it that we can do? So you come in, it's not about creating only strategy, but it's being a part of the finance team. Um, we know businesses like to work in silos. Uh, it's it's unfortunate, but the marketing department doesn't get along with the sales department. The finance does, department doesn't get along with everybody. Production department doesn't know much with uh, QA. So African Brand Warrior comes in as um, the adhesive between all these departments and now is able to bring in a bigger picture, is, is able to understand things, is able to understand what is the vision of the board and then to also understand what are the challenges the people below the line have, what are their ideas, because I believe an idea can even come from a toilet cleaner. It can come in from the kitchen staff, it can come from anywhere. And then I work with the communication agencies, so I become the bridge between the two, so that whatever we churn out has the perspective of both client and communicator, um, and, and, and then brings it you know, um, in that manner. So that's what African Brand Warrior um, offers, and it comes in from the perspective of challenging, um, I keep saying that if you are not, if you're too comfortable in what you're doing, then there's a problem. It has to be yeah. discomfort um, in whatever we're doing. So African brand where it actually comes in to create that discomfort, to question your why, to question your purpose, to question uh, why are you doing what you're doing and how can we do it better? So that's that's what we do. Amazing. Great. So you're best in, in Ghana. How, how do you, like the clients that you work with, uh, are they brands that are best in Ghana or across Africa and internationally? Um, interestingly, I don't work with any client in Ghana. I think it's probably just one or two. All my clients are outside Ghana. Um, mm -hmm. There are different parts of Africa. I work with people in Mozambique, in Malawi, in Uganda, in Rwanda, um, you know, um, even Yukakira Sugar um, in, in Uganda. I was a part of that in terms of some of the design aspects. So I have clients in, in, in different um, parts and um, they're all African-based. Um, and born in Africa with the intent of not only building their brands within the continent, but obviously wanting to take it outside the continent. Great. So what, what, one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, obviously I've seen, I've read a lot about, about you. I've seen um, the events where you, 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 get, you give talks, uh, interviews with people, um, and you, have, you seem to have a lot of energy, a lot of passion, uh, a lot of confidence. Uh, when did you? How did you develop that for you know other young women who who want to have an impact? Like how can they uh, develop their confidence and their energy and and, and do things they're passionate about? 
Um, from from I think from the time that I was a kid, all I remember is I was very outspoken, very um, confident, and um, bless my parents for that. I think we were given the um, the liberty. I mean, I'm a multi multiracial child, um, and when you are born into a multiracial uh, family, you tend to already have thousands of eyes looking at you. You know, uh, trying to always understand or try to figure you out. So that creates a platform for you to want to be better than everyone else. Um, so I think it's basically the environment that you grow in. Um, then came in the aspect of, I'm not a feminist by the way, but I do fight for women. Um, I just think that the word has been misrepresented. <coughs> Sorry. I think the, the word has been misrepresented to mean um, for some people men bashing, but that's not what it is. Um, it's only later in life when you get into the corporate world that's when you realize that, wait a second, it is hard being a female um, in a corporate world because people talk about the glass ceiling, you know, um, and there's only so much that you can reach. But now the problem is no more about the glass ceiling. It's what I call the glass cliff. Um, and, you know, people can read up on that. So you'll notice that in, in big corporates right now, um, a lot of men are being replaced by women as CEOs or, you know, as um, presidents or, or um, uh, whatever other title that's out there for at the peak. And once women turn around the business, they just get flicked like that off the cliff and they get replaced by another man, you know. And also when the woman is being put into that position um, at the top, they don't bring a woman from the outside. You will notice, look at any corporate right now that's had a, a president or, you know, an, an MD or whatever, the person is brought in from within the organization. Okay, which means that they felt comfortable with somebody that they know who knows the business. Let's give them an opportunity to shine, get our stuff done, and then throw them out as quickly as we can. So as I grew up, um, I've had many challenges in life. I have had a, a lot of things that um, have broken my back, that have broken my um, uh, my heart. You know, having lost my dad, my dad being terminally ill. Um, I mean, in, in various things, in sports that, that I played. So each time, you know, it's like rising of the phoenix. You know, you, you get thrown into something, you get thrown into the mud, and then you stand up and rise. So I think my confidence has come in more from life just, you know, teaching you a lot of things um, and, and wanting you to sort of like, you know, like a diamond. You, know, you come out as a coal and you get polished and you get polished. So I don't see that I'm any different than, than um, women out there. I just think they need to be given the opportunity um, I, I feel that you need to believe in yourself. Um, I, and I believe in myself and I like, I love myself first before everyone else. Um, so I think if you do that, that's the only way then, you know, you can, uh, you can be able to go out there. And again, it comes in from a space of authenticity. And if you're authentic and true to yourself, then it doesn't really matter what you go and say out there because you know, then you're coming in from a space of speaking your truth. Some people may agree with it. Some people may not agree with it, but at least then, you know, there is nothing that is inauthentic about you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so let's let's go back to talking about uh, branding, marketing, and, and, and communications. Uh, can you, for people who have businesses or want to start businesses or have brands, uh, can you tell us what the difference is between branding, marketing, and communications and how, we, you know, it works together? That's like a class 101. <laughs> yeah. um, so 
the first thing is that um, for people who think sales is different from marketing, please understand that sales is a part of marketing. Marketing is the umbrella. So branding, sales, communication, PR, all fall under the umbrella of, of marketing, but then each one is a different discipline within the bigger discipline. Um, so as I sit in front of you right now, I am a brand, you are a brand, uh, Fahad. You know, you have the brand of you being a Rwandan, me being a Kenyan. So there's a national uh, brand that plays a role that there's the aspect of being an African. So we are branded as Africans. And then it comes into what you do as uh, the bold African, as your business as a brand. And then, you know, there's African brand warrior as a brand. And then there's the brand Fatima and the brand uh, Fahad. So branding, I mean, originated from the time where, and it's sad, it actually came in from slave trade. Mm. You know, when slave trade was happening, if you, uh, I don't know how much you've read of history, uh, you know, when the Dutch and the French and um, all the others that were there uh, were coming in, they took slaves and they would take a mark, an iron mark and put it on them, you know, uh, to represent that this is my man. So when they were being shipped, you knew who they belonged to. Sadly, that's where it originated from. Then the next step went into branding um, cattle and animals. Um, the same way, you know, you put a mark and a farmer was able to know that this is this is my my herd. And then it obviously moved into, you know, putting in names. And, but for me, brands uh, basically are, are, I mean, everybody in marketing will tell you that it's not innate. It's basically a, a, a living um, product. It must represent something. It must have a perception. You know, what do people think about it? It must have a personification. If I was to talk about, I mean, I don't want to promote any brand right now up here, but if I was to speak about um, a certain, uh, the number one leading beverage drink, you know, if it was to walk through the door, what would you visualize it as? You know, if you were to put a person to that, um, would it be this tall, um, you know, hunky, um, Senegalese looking kind of man? Or what is it, you know? So branding is is about putting life um, into it. Now, while we say that, it's at the same time a perception, right? So what you think of me and what you thought of me before you spoke to me was the brand, the brand image you have of me. It, it was the perception you had of me. And then hopefully after this conversation, you realize that, hey, wait a second, because I might realize, hey, wait a second, Fouad doesn't really get um, the gist of who I am or hasn't really understood who Fatima is. So it is upon me, the brand, to make sure I rectify the perception that you have of me. So I come in and hopefully at the end of this conversation, the perception changes. Um, if the perception that you had uh, matches what you have um, at the end of this conversation, that it means I've done a good job of it. So um, in totality, businesses need to understand that marketing is not about um going in and saying hey let me put a tv advert and oh let me feature on facebook and let me put something happening on instagram um and oh let me create a product and let me put a label it goes beyond all that you know when you're creating a brand to put on a shelf it must have a pick-me-up feel you need to know why you're even putting the name what does that name represent what do the colors represent um you don't just come out of it and say hey this is what i'm going to create um if it's an organization why are you giving your company that name what does it mean what does it uh say to the people who's your target audience who are you speaking to so for me marketing is a science you know it's purely a science about understanding so when salespeople look at it as oh my god i just need to go and create sales and i need to make the numbers and i need to achieve the volume if i get it at the right price that is so wrong 
because you need to understand that the people that you're selling to also have emotions, they have perceptions. It's not always just about price, you know. So everything has to come in together. It's a holistic science of understanding why people um, need to pick you as their choice and to be part of their life. Awesome. Thank wow. you for, for that uh, detailed explanation. But that's um, not the way Harvard or anybody else is going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would say I would say you know that's um, you know much better and uh, understandable. You know sometimes you have to give real examples for people who are not familiar with a, a concept to understand it. Uh, so, how can businesses leverage branding and marketing to uh, let's say you know African businesses, right? How can they leverage branding and, and marketing to? Uh, be able to grow their revenues and, and have a greater impact? See, for me, Fouad, in all honesty right now, I would break that into, into two, two aspects. You have the established organizations that are, you know, multinationals or African nationals, um, you know, big corporations. And then you have those that are startups um, and, you know, young entrepreneurs that are coming in. Uh, one of the challenges, if I start with the, the, the second group, um, the youth right now and the young people, I mean, have an amazing, um, uh, you know, thorough of ideas that they have, um, you know, that's churning out of situation. Um, you know, uh, let me create this kind of cup. Let me create this kind of app. Let me create this. So it's all coming in from a problem. Uh, marketing is that. It's about what is the problem and what is the solution that you can provide to that problem. That Then you know you have a marketing, uh, you know, um, tactic right, right there. So my challenge with the youth is that because they're so quick and they're so they're the only generation right now that has been exposed to so much of the of the internet and the world that is out there unlike my generation we had to learn as we went along. So because they're very quick they want to make money today. You know, it's about right now. Um and in the process they will do whatever shortcut that they can take instead of learning the ropes and the process. Um, to be able to um, get to where they need to get. And hence the reason you find a lot of startups starting well and then failing, you know, um, not bringing in the right people on board or, you know, even bringing in advisors or people that can guide you or mentors that can help you um, in the process. So marketing becomes a crucial element for them because if you don't tell people what what is the problem that your product is coming to to give a solution to, or what is your app coming to do? Or why are you branding it in the manner? Why are you doing the color that you're doing? What does your logo represent? Then you haven't really spoken to the audience that is supposed to be your your audience. Who are you, who are you selling to? Um, secondly is that people assume that the people you create the brand for, the, the end user, is the one that you also have to market to. It's not because aspiration is an important thing because when you aspire to a level that is higher, it makes people feel wait a second, I may not afford that, but I'd love to become a part of that. Do you get it? So that becomes the first stepping stones. For me, um, the entrepreneurs, the startups, it's crucial to have people that can come on board to help you um, in terms of your business plans, uh, to be able to help you on your marketing plans, help you on your brand and communication um, strategy and plans. Um, you know, uh, maybe they will say to you that, listen, I don't have the money to bring you on board. The world is not working like that anymore. You tell a person, listen, I'm willing to give you a stake in my business, you know, whether it's 1%, 5%, 4%. I don't have the money to pay you right now, but can we work together, um, you know, in this and lift it together? So I see that as a potential. I mean, that's the reason shark dens and, uh, you know, the lion dens or whatever exist. The difference is there is that somebody's coming to invest in your money because they see potential in you 
But it's not because they want you to grow. It's because they want to also be able to own many businesses. So why can't we do that at that level, you know, with the youth and get people to come in and angel invest, you know, even if it's putting in $2,000 in, in, a, in, a, in a project, but come in and help them, uh, you know, to, to take it to the next level. When it comes to corporates, um, my problem with corporates is that um, you have some amazing organizations who we know are brand organizations. Everything that they do is based on brand insight, market insight, consumer insight. They get every kind of report uh, from research um, under this earth. Um, the problem uh, there tends to be the bureaucracy. You know, there's so much bureaucracy in the system uh, that by the time you want to create something to address a problem, you have taken so long to do it. Either your competitors are going to get it done before you or somebody in the youth segment is going to find a solution to that problem and get in there very quickly. So for me, on that level of multinationals, it's always about the bureaucracy and the time. Secondly, um, is also the vision. You know, the vision at the top does not match um, what the output and the outcome of the people at the bottom um, is. Now, if we take um, African brands, um, again, one of the biggest problems that I see is that a lot of African brands, especially those that are coming up or those that don't know much about marketing and branding, they take shortcuts in terms of not understanding their target audience or their market. And you can see somebody who's producing amazing beef, uh, you know, um, honey, for example, or somebody who's making amazing shea um, products, you know, that in the market is being sold raw, but is able to now brand it and, and create. But they're not good at, at, at labeling. So all of a sudden, you don't see people wanting to pick that brand because they don't feel it resonates with them or they don't believe it can do what it does. I'll give you an example. Um, in Canada, there were these two guys who created a, a garbage bag. And they I think the market rate, and I stand to be corrected, I think the garbage bag uh, market was at uh, $4, $4.5. Um, and um, these guys came in and they came in with a garbage bag at I think it was $1.5 or 2 and their garbage bag was supposed to be unbreakable, okay? And that's what they said, listen, you can take our bags and they don't break. Nobody bought them because nobody resonated that if you believe that this thing can actually work, why are you selling it at 1.5? Somebody came in, gave them the advice, they went and changed the pricing strategy. They took it straight away up to $7. They sold out, okay? So again, it's about perception, how you market, who are you market to? So I see that this thing can work for African brands if we just get it right. My problem is today, and I know a lot of players in the market right now who are selling to America, for example, if I talk about Ghana itself, um, they're creating Shia products, they're creating amazing products, but when they're selling it to America, my friend, that thing can sell at you know any of the top uh, notch outlets and will be bought, and they'll sell it at high prices. But if they were selling it to the basic Ghanaian, you should see the packaging is the most pathetic packaging so why do we treat that anyone out there is better deserving than our own within the market so that's what i come in to do and say how can i help you to be good for just your own first before you take it out yeah great so how, how can these uh, african brands penetrate the international markets because um we we don't see a lot of african brands making it making it into like u.s market or European market, how can they uh, position themselves to uh, start serving all these other markets as well, instead of relying on, um, you know, importing, uh, they can also start exporting their products to international markets. 
Okay, so first thing first, will they allow us? Will there, will will the other international markets allow African brands to come in and become, um, you know, great? Um, if we take uh, a brand like um, what what is the coffee company, the one that's in that all airports called Java is Kenyan, um, Starbucks. Okay, um, every time I'm flying, oh my god, I just go in and have a cup, and I see, oh my god, Kenya, and then I see Addis Ababa. But where the, where the hell is the Kenyan flag on that on that brand? It's it's not even it's just that they're telling you its origin is Kenyan, but who owns it? It's Starbucks, right? Um, if you talk, I mean, coming from Kenya right now, I know one of the biggest uh, things that the government has recently talked about is now adding value to the Kenyan tea, for example, and coffee that's going out because eighty uh, percent of everything was going in as bulk, you know, not branded, and then somebody else is branding it and just saying, oh, it's from Kenya, but the brand is not yours. So. The first concern is that what can we do as governments, as uh, policymakers, um, by involving the marketers and the branders uh, in this, to say that how can we start protecting um, and building our brands first, okay, within the continent? Um, you take an example of the uh, Kiondo. I was writing about that recently. The Kiondo. I mean, you have it also in uh, in Rwanda. You know, the basket woven basket. Yeah. The Swahili word for it is Kiondo. But the, the word and design has been patented by somebody else. And if I'm not wrong, I think it was Japan or somebody. How can that happen when it belongs to Africa? You talk about the Kikoi. Kikoi is a fabric that is, is woven and created by Kenyans and worn by Kenyans. And all of a sudden, again, the same thing you know is happening. Um, recently, there was the, I think it was three or four weeks ago, the, it was the African top 100 brands that was announced. It was a research that was done out of um, South Africa, if I'm not wrong. And... Um, I think the top 100 brands, or was it the top 50 or the top 70? None of them was an African brand. It was global brands like um, MTN and uh, um, BMW or whatever it was. So who is responsible for that? You know, when Africans themselves have not been given the opportunity to understand their own brands, you know, we don't, we don't push our own brands. We don't support, we don't um, support market um, or get people to buy our own. Why will we why will we be focusing on the international market? I think mm. first we need to as and this is why I'm happy the continental free trade is finally happening. You know, it was supposed to start on the first of July, but obviously because of the pandemic, it hasn't happened. Rwanda right now has amazing stuff that they can sell into Kenya. Oh. I lost you. Hello? Sorry, I lost you there for a minute. Oh, sorry about that. No, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you froze, uh, the, the screen froze. Yeah, not to worry. So what I'm saying is that first, for me, continental free trade is the answer to this. Um, you know, um, let's see how uh, Rwanda has got amazing stuff that it produces. How can it sell it into Kenya? How can it sell it into uh, Sudan? Ethiopia has got the best leather. How can it sell it into Ghana? Ghana's got um, cocoa and chocolate. How can we sell it into Kenya? You know, what is it that Kenya can sell? So once we start this inter-Africa trade, 
then it means the competition starts getting stiffer and it means that consumers start demanding better. Now, if we look at the West African part of the world um, in comparison, and the same thing with Rwanda is that it's an import-based country. You know, literally up to 90% of everything is imported, which means consumers in West Africa are exposed to international brands that are of a certain quality. So you can't come and sell them any, you know, riffraff stuff. Um, they know they know the best. So that means that anyone that is going to produce anything within this country has to match um, the international standard for them to be able to procure it. So can we say the same for Southern Sudan? Can we say the same for Tanzania? You know, the same for Mozambique? That's where we need to work on it. So before we can even think about the first world, because the first world right now is only focusing and interested in our raw material. Okay. Um, And I keep saying this as much as people think that, you know, uh, colonialism has ended. Um, I don't think so. Right now we have colonialism going on. Um, and I, as much as I love my Chinese friends, I do, because uh, I have quite a few friends. Um, there is a colonial, um, chi- a Chinese colonialism happening at the moment, not of any fault of their own, because China, for example, right now is coming in and supporting, you know, governments and saying, hey, here, we're going to give you money to build your port. Hey, wait a second. Here is money to build your railway. Hey, here is money to build your airport. Now, if you looked at that, um, basically what they've done is they've come and helped you to be responsible or build whatever you want to do within entry and exit into Africa, into your country. Are you going to be able to pay them that money? No, you're not. And then what happens? They come and take it over. Okay. Today, China is the world's cheapest manufacturer in the world. Yeah, I mean, in the world. Okay. Um, so you sell them the raw materials. They produce what they need for themselves. The balance, they're going to come back and export it to Africa. Where are manufacturers in Africa going to survive in the next four or five years? They won't be able to compete. So hence why marketing and branding is going to be so crucial, first for ourselves, for our own, and then we go out there. Once we perfect it for ourselves, then we go out there. I mean, today you talk about Moringa powder. Everyone in the first world is like, oh, my God, Moringa. You know, it's an amazing thing. It's great for cancer. How many Africans use Moringa? How many of us are actually trading it between ourselves? Yeah. So we need to re re revisit that whole discussion yeah so we need to start buying african products and um and that will come from these african brands basically convincing africans that they have the value that people expect from these foreign products right absolutely yeah so um so you talked about how basically we importing all these products from china from uh wherever, right? And all these products are made from raw materials that are uh, exported from Africa. So what can African uh, businesses and uh, nations uh, do to start adding value uh, instead of just relying on exporting uh, these raw materials? How can they add value to their products or um, encourage, you know, the local industries to produce you know this product instead of just exporting raw materials at a cheap prices what can the we issue do is not is not the industries to be fair the issue mm-hmm. is the government policies you know okay. and what governments do um and and don't do 
to make it easier for industries to thrive and grow and uh, whatever. So um, let me ask you, I mean, I, I, would, I wouldn't take, one, take Rwanda as an example because Rwanda for me right now is the epitome of what can be done in Africa. And, you know, congratulations to you and, you know, Rwandans. You have shown that whatever you want to do is achievable. You know, and I'll give you an example for uh, when there was the whole discussion about banning paper. I mean, uh, banning plastics in Kenya. You know, we made so much noise about it for years. No, we can't. We can't. We can't do this. Da 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 da. And then we just decided, oh, one day we're going to give a deadline and we're going to ban. And then we ban, and then there is going to be no solution to it, right? Sometimes you might have to go that way. But what did Rwanda do? Rwanda went and built up the paper industry first. Okay, so it didn't come up with a knee-jerk approach. It built up. The, the, the paper industry and then banned, you know, plastics. Um, you talk about secondhand clothes, you know, the we call it mitumba in Kenya. Um, I don't know what you call it in Rwanda. Um, but, you know, you're getting clothes of people that have died, that are being sold, um, you know, people who are throwing away their stuff in garbage um, uh, bags, you know, and being washed and reset for us to wear right down to underwears and everything else. So Rwanda said, you know what, this is disrespectful for our people. We can't do this. Well, what do they do? They went and built, you know, the textile industry before they started this. So it shows as a can-do attitude. So um, right now, if I'm not wrong, I think Stripe Masiwa was also in Rwanda last last year, um, and um, there's, there's some Rwandan um, girls who came up with uh, the, the canvas, which could uh, shoes that could compete with Nike, um, you know. But the investment is being done in them. You know, it's being it's being invested in um, the if you look at the Alibaba Foundation, uh, which I participated in last year, the winners were Rwandans. So when you see it's about investing in your people. OK, so I wouldn't go blaming manufacturing industries or uh, people want to do. I'm sure people have ideas um, who want to. I mean, if you talk about Ghana, for example, we have bauxite, we have this. I'm sure if somebody wants to do it, they're not going to be given the opportunity to do it. You know, there's going to be just so much bureaucracy because we find it easier that somebody else is going to bring us this hundred millions of dollars, uh, which I'd rather take than, you know, the, the, the one million dollar that your business is going to give me. So um, I think first it has to come in from governments. Governments have to change the glasses that they wear. They have to be supportive of their own nations. They've got to be supportive of the continent. And then we can start talking about, you know, what else can we do outside there? So we've got to start protecting what's our own. We need to add value within the continent. And this can happen with the continental free trade. Um, if, you know, right now Mozambique is great in um, cashew nuts. I mean, they're, they're 60% of the cashew nuts that grow globally is from Africa. 70% um, of cocoa that goes to the world is from Africa. How can we ensure that the different countries coming together, uh, maybe we don't have the full facility to produce chocolates. How can we speak to Kenya or maybe speak to our neighbors, uh, you know, in Nigeria or Niger? Let's produce chocolates and then supply the world. You know, so it yeah. can only work through collaboration. We need to collaborate with a continent first. Yeah, that's powerful. Uh, I, I firmly believe in that, you know, collaboration and uh, Africans coming together uh, as one and, support, uh, and start supporting each other and working with one another. Uh, so, so these, so Alibaba Group uh, obviously is helping some young African entrepreneurs and injecting some uh, capital uh, in in Africa. So, what do you? Uh, so, how else can these uh, young entrepreneurs who have great ideas, uh, different ideas on how to solve Africa's problems, how can they get funding, capital for, for their companies? 
Do you have any ideas on how? I mean, there's so much. Look, um, what in my line of, I mean, apart from what I do with African Brand Warrior, I sit on different um, C-suit um, discussion and boards where monies are lent out, you know, from other countries, from Europe, from, you know, various markets. Um, I don't want to mention which one those are. And there are grants that are sitting there, you know, uh, wanting to invest and support. Even the World Bank itself has it. Yeah. The challenge has been that um, a lot of times people have great ideas, but they don't know how to put it on paper. They don't know how to craft their business plan. They don't know um, how to sell their ideas. Um, what is this big idea that you have? And how do you see it translating, you know, five years down the line? They only think about today. Hence the reason we go back to the earlier question. I think it was your second question where I said it's so important to have people come on board on your, on your, on your team. You know, go in and find people who are good at what they do and make them a part of your board or make them a part of your advisory um, team. You know, um, let them invest in you, the knowledge, the support, and give back by making them a partner in it. Um, uh, or, you know, just go in with some agreements to people who are willing to help you and say, hey, listen, I don't have anything to offer you right now. I don't even know if my business is going to work. Can you help me to do my business plan? Can you help me to do what I need to do to be able to get that fund that is sitting there, you know, at the World Bank or sitting at wherever it is? And if that comes through, I pay you a percentage, you know, of, yeah. of the income. So money is there. Money is not the issue. The problem is the people who, um, I mean, apart from the World Banks and, you know, whether it's the DFIDs or whoever else are really ready to give you this money, is that people don't know how to put the proposals forward. That is one. Secondly, is that we have our own um, institutions within Africa, you know, the, 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 the banks. And for me, they are, they are, they're the ones that are killing um, but unfortunately, you can't blame them because they also are part of a bigger uh, picture. If you're going to be going and lending money at 22%, 24%, how do you expect somebody to survive and be able to pay you back, you know, that kind of money? Um, if we talk about the agri sector, which I also happen to be a part of and chair, how do you expect a farmer who doesn't have anything? I mean, these are people who don't work with bank statements. They don't know when money comes in, when money goes out. They don't keep track of all that. What collaterals do you want from these people? How do you want to be able to loan to them so that they could grow their produce, be able to sell and pay you back, you know? So it really needs a complete mind shift. Money is out there. We just need to find different ways of getting it and how to get that investment um, locally and, you know, internationally. Right now, Africa is where people want to invest. I'm open to investment coming in, but I'm not open to investment if it's going to come and take away from you, yeah. you know? Invest in me to be able to make me help my people grow, but as we grow, you grow. I don't know yeah. if that's making sense, you know. Yeah. And that's talking back about collaboration. It should not be about hey, listen, I've got this hundred thousand dollars, and I want to come and put it in you, and I want you to turn my hundred thousand dollars into five hundred thousand dollars, and then I remain with nothing, not even fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, it has to go two ways. You know, you you both have to benefit from the transaction. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so speaking of, you know, uh, people want to invest in Africa. Uh, so who are the people who want to invest in Africa? Uh, are these like foreign investors or are these Africans? Uh, and Africans in Africa who want to do that. Um, I mean, you look at, uh, I'll, I'll take a name like Dangote. Dangote is a known uh, player on the continent. I mean, Nigerian, but you look at all the different markets that he has gone and invested in. I wouldn't mention one of the countries that he tried to get into, but unfortunately, there was too much of people wanting hands shooken, 
you know, an envelopes exchange, which doesn't tie in with um, what his firm believes in. So that became a no-no opportunity, um, you know, and he didn't enter that certain market. Uh, but he is already going out. He is creating jobs. He's, he's in different, um, you have strife, must um, you are out of, um, you know, southern part of um, Africa. And he's making a difference in, in his own ways. You have investors. I mean, Alibaba is is one of them. Um, you know, looking at the African youth and seeing there is potential. So um, I don't see this being as a problem. But here is my question to the diaspora. Okay. What is it? I mean, the diaspora is the largest um you know, funder back into Africa, okay? Now, can you imagine if the diaspora came together and said, hey, listen, we're a group of, let's say, 30 people, and we 30 people between us can raise uh, $30,000, you know, let's just say per annum, you know, and then you take another 30 with uh, with 30,000, $1,000 per annum, each one just puts in, you know, $10 a week or $100 um, a month, and, you know, you've got your $1,000. And they identify projects um, within Africa that are startups, um, you know, forget the big boys and say, hey, listen, look, you know what, we're going to go and put in um, $10,000 in this one, we're going to put $10,000 in that, we're going to put five in this, five in that. Can you imagine the ecosystem that you create of Africans sitting out there that can actually invest within Africa and then come back home to grow it and take it to the next level? The knowledge yeah. is out there, you know, yeah. it is out there. So that's the thing. How can we do this? How can we reach out to our fellow Africans that are sitting out there and say, yeah. hey, listen, it's not all about just wanting to buy land. I mean, land is the biggest investment, you know, any African does. I mean, even in India, they do that, you know, when you buy yeah. land and then you sit on it. And all you do is you want to build a house with five bedrooms and a swimming pool. Who are you going to show? You know, go build a nice three bedroom for yourself and your family or your parents, you know, something that you have something to come back home to or, you know, to rent out and then go and invest in businesses, invest in people, you know, yeah, um, yeah. that's the way I see um, opportunity for us to grow. Yeah. That's amazing. So I think, yeah. So the diaspora wants to invest uh, back on the continent, but also there is a problem of trust. Like how do I make sure that my money comes back or I make a profit or, you know, the money that I'm sending is going to the right people. Uh, how do I build this trust without being on the continent? So I've talked to uh, so, like my very first guest and he was telling me, hey, there is this issue of trust. People cannot start businesses in Africa while living abroad. You have to be you have to be on the continent for you to have any chance of like succeeding in business. But I agree with you. On the investment side, uh, coming together, pulling our investments, right, and then investing together as a group, uh, you know, something like that can work because you can sort out the agreements and and structure on how to do that, and we can start contributing and helping these uh, young entrepreneurs who have great ideas that can help the continent to uh, move forward, right. I, I just want to address that part of the, the trust. And that's why you can see I'm clenching my hands under my table. It, yeah, is, yeah. it is true, you know. Um, but again, who who's creating this image? It's we ourselves. We don't trust each other, you know. Um, even within Africa, you know, you see somebody else who's got a, a better car, a better house. My goodness, the kind of thoughts that come into your head, like how did he get that money? And who did he, da-da-da, da-da-da, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's probably got some polit political person backing him or whatever. So we are our own problem, we are our own disease. The only way that you want to be able to create this trust, you want to be able to collaborate, be a part of it. 
you know, be a part of it. Uh, it's not about, I'm not talking about you lending money. It's about saying that, listen, this is what I am able to do. This is where my strengths lie. And this is what I can bring onto the table in your business. For example, if you spoke to me, uh, I mean, in an initial discussion, you mentioned you're into software. I don't know zilch about software, okay? <laughs> but I'm great at marketing. So that doesn't mean that you and I cannot collaborate. And if I was to ask the same question, you know, to a diasporan African sitting out there, why should I trust you with my money, for example? You know, it's not like it's any different there. It's not like I'm going to get a visa to be able to say, oh, my God, I'm going to fly. I have to chase so-and-so because they've got my money, you know. So I think it works both ways. Um, the only way it works is purely on the basis of, wait a second, I have something that can add value to what you're doing. And, you know, you have something that I see um, we can work together and take it to the next level because it's about what strength do you have and what strength do I have and how can we leverage that, you know, and yeah. then take it to the next level. Yeah. Great. So, yeah, um, while we're still talking about that topic, uh, so Africa is rising. You hear this term all over the place. And, you know, some people, including myself, we don't know, you know, what it really means. Um you know, Africa is rising. Africa is the future. And uh, uh, here, here is uh, something I read from The Economist that, you know, Africa's population is uh, projected to double by 2050. And Nigeria alone uh, is expected to be, to have a population of 400 million from 200 million, right? So that presents a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities for, for Africa. Uh, can you talk about, you know, what it means to you, Africa is rising, what it means, and also talk about, you know, these opportunities and challenges that, uh, you know, this population growth is going to present? Okay, so um, again, like as usual, my answer is going to be a very weird one. Uh, first and foremost, even I don't know what this Africa rising is. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, do they mean Africa is rising in terms of numbers and babies and you know whatever else? Yeah. Or um, is um, Africa rising in terms of poverty? Is Africa rising in terms of opportunity? Or what is it? Because this is my answer to Africa rising. Africa rose a long time ago. Africa is where mankind started. It was the cradle of mankind. Okay. In fact, it started. I mean, the first man uh, was out of Africa. And the first man used to crawl and then he bent up and then he walked. So when the first man was able to walk in Africa, that's when Africa rose. We rose from our knees and we rose to being standing up. So for me, Africa rising took place then. It's not taking place now. The difference is that Africa is the last continent to make a difference. Okay. Everybody's been there, done that. You look at Asia, they've been there, they've created the Asian tigers you know, done what they needed to do. You look at America, you know, they, they're supposed to be the land of opportunity, um, you know, and whatever else, and look at what they're going through right now. You look at Europe, you know, they were the, supposed to be the food basket. That's where, you know, wheat was grown, um, just like America. And then now everybody is, is divorcing each other and they're, you know, exiting from one another. So if there's any place that anything um, still remains, and has been blessed, you know, with land, with water, with sea, with, with human resource, is Africa, okay? Now, if we go back to history again, we talk about people, you know, being taken as slaves. And I'm like, no, it wasn't slaves. You enslaved them, okay? Why do I say that? Because from time immemorial, um, you know the story about hunters and gatherers.
gatherers. Okay, um, hunters were the men, and they went and they hunted, and then the gatherers were the women. So basically, what it's trying to say is that women are the ones who created the foods that we eat today. They're the ones knew that this is poisonous, this is not poisonous. So they created um, civilization. They created, you know, the food economy. Um, when people were being taken away, you had midwives who were giving birth to children. Okay, so when they were being enslaved, it's just that maybe the word midwife didn't exist in the English word or whatever it was at that time. But you were taking somebody who was a nurse. You know, um, when people were using stones to teach their children, you know, about um, whether it was math or how to count, you know, their cattle or whatever, you were taking a mathematician, you were taking a teacher. So it's just that they didn't have those names. And then they went and built what is the first world. Okay, so Africa for me rose at that time. Now, if we come into terms of opportunity, the opportunity is there. But then the opportunity can only make sense when we stop sending out our raw materials. It can only stop when we start adding value and creating job creation. Because if you're talking about 450 million people uh, in just one country, I mean, no, it's even more than that because already Nigeria is you know, um, going to do a billion um, like India. Where are they going to get the food? Where is that food coming from? Are we self-sufficient in terms of our, our our food? Do we grow enough for ourselves? So before we start even thinking about, you know, export, and that's why I look at China and I respect them, you know, for that, because they have done, these are the, they only have, I think it's, uh, I can't remember how much uh, land they have left. Was it uh, 3,000 hectares or something? I can't remember. Um, and that's the reason even the way they build their homes, they build them in this manner because they don't have space. Um, and whatever they do is to take care of their people first, okay? And that's the reason they're going out to different countries and saying, hey, listen, we want you to come and um, give us your resource, give us food, give us sesame, give us whatever. It's to feed their people first, okay? You look at Egypt right now, because of the issue that's going on between Egypt and Ethiopia about the, the, the dam and the river Nile, the water levels are going down. Now, Egyptians are the biggest consumers of rice. But what has Egypt done? Egypt has sent out its people and said, listen, Go out on the continent, go and go rice, rice wherever you want, export it back to, to Egypt. They thought about it, you know. So if they can do it, why can't we do that? I mean, you talk about cassava, you talk about yam, you know, you talk about our plantain. These are things that we as Africans have grown on. Do we have sufficient to be able to say that we can take care of our people first so that uh, food sufficiency comes in first? And then through that, we create jobs. You know, so we need to ask the right questions. Uh, so... It's not about uh, is um, is Africa rising? Is it is Africa ready to be able to take care of its own? I think that's where the conversation has to lead to. It's about localization. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, yeah, so we talked about how Africa is exporting these raw materials. Um, I think you know that's where these you know when the government, these African governments, uh, revise their policies and encourage local manufacturing, um, you know, will we'll be able to increase uh, production locally and, you know, create jobs and also have enough to sustain the population, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of food and agriculture, <laughs> so th there's been a, a trend, I would say, People are talking about how agriculture is like the first sector that presents a lot of opportunities for investors. And um, personally, the, fr the people, friends that I went to high school with that are into agriculture that are getting, <laughs> uh, 
their businesses funded that are uh, having you know creating these deals with uh, China that I've talked to they're like hey there's a lot of potential in agriculture but you're on on the board of um, associate of Ghana industries right yeah so you you understand well the agribusiness and, and the sector right yeah I try <laughs> yeah so for people who are interested in investing in agriculture and uh, you know coming to Africa or do like agribusiness what can you tell them and where where do you see opportunities in, in the sector look it's it, it's it is where the money is you know I keep saying that when one when we spend a dollar to import that dollar is never coming back but when you spend a dollar within your continent that within each country it rotates between six to eight times within the country it, it, it changes hands within that uh, number of periods so clearly shows you that if you want to do anything do it on the continent you know you know don't don't go sending money out to um, when you go out buying a Jaguar or you know a BMW from outside um, you're actually creating jobs for somebody else because somebody else then has to come to the factory to build one more Toyota for you or one more BMW for you. Um, you're not doing anything for yourself. You're sending that money out and it's never coming back. You're only just going to get this piece of metal coming to you. Okay. Um, the same thing, if we look at the, uh, the, the chocolate industry, I mean, if 70% of the cocoa is going out of um, Africa, you know, and it's just a few players, it's Ivory Coast, um, you know, Ghana, Nigeria, um, you have some going in from Benin. If just between a handful, you know, of four, four countries um, holds 70%, yet we're only competing in the 1.5 billion sector, okay, uh, which is the sector of raw material. Um, when you talk about the chocolate sector itself, the chocolate sector is $150 billion, okay? And in the one in the 1.5 billion, you don't even get 5% of that. So why are we not playing in the bigger in the bigger uh, pie? Uh, is it that we can't produce Godiva? Is it that we cannot produce Lindt chocolates here? Yeah, of course we can. And what is sad for me is that, um, and with all due respect to Belgium, they make the best chocolates and there's no denying about that. Um, my question is that they don't even have one cocoa tree. They don't, they've never climbed a cocoa tree. Um, and yet, you know, the guys here are the ones going, sweating, are not able to feed their family three meals a day you know, just to be able to get that pod, put it down there, sell it so that it can be exported, okay? Opportunity lies there. The opportunity for me is between merging the old and the new. And when I mean the old and the new is that technology is crucial. We need to move away from the archaic system of using a hoe and borrowing and, you know, figuring out to grow. We should be able to use machinery for this, okay? Um, if I quote Her Excellency, the former president of Mauritius, um, Dr. Amina Fukim, she's working on something where it is about taking the knowledge that the older generation hold, because once these people die, they go with all the knowledge that they have. Where is the repository of, hey, listen, this is the best way to grow, you know, bananas or the best way to grow maize or because the young ones don't know. The young ones are all running into the urban center wanting to be tech gurus you know, uh, want to get into social media, want to get into marketing, and nobody wants to really go and dirty their hands. But it's because we have made agriculture to be seen and to be considered to be a poor man's job. It's considered to be dirty. It's not considered to be modern. But I have a saying, and I keep saying this, that when God created one custodian for this earth, 
He created the farmer because you and I would not be sitting and having this conversation. There would be no president of a nation if they didn't have food on their table. It's because of the farmer. When you look at governments right now, a government employee can read the newspaper, be it in Rwanda, in Ghana, Nigeria, wherever. They can sit and read the newspaper from eight in the morning until five in the evening and still earn a salary. But a farmer is not guaranteed of a salary because his salary comes in on being able to sell his produce. Okay, so are we guaranteeing that farmer that he, he, whatever he produces is going to be sold? No. So opportunity is there, and that's where we need to invest. I mean, what is it that we're doing by importing chicken and meat from, I mean, right now Africa is the biggest importer, I mean, some countries, at least in West Africa, from Brazil, from America, and from the UK. Are you telling me that we can't grow chicken in our own backyards? Poultry farming, potential. Cattle farming, potential, um, green vegetable, potential, um, you know, converting your fruits into dehydrated products, potential. So I would like to see how we can use the youth with all these ideas that they have, you know, how can we address water problems, you know, like irrigation, there must be some, some technology or, you know, a robotic way or AI, I don't know, what is it that we could do with the knowledge that the youth have and what the older generation has in terms of you know, if you plant it in this way, this is what's going to happen. This is the, the height that you need. What can be done to merge those two and be able to make it work? Because if there's no agriculture, there is no country, there is no people, there is there's nothing. Agriculture, yeah. it's, it's basically, it's what creates the ecosystem, you know, for yeah. our existence. So the potential, that's where the money is. That's where the money yeah. is. Yeah. Perfect. So... What, so what kind of problems do you see right now in, in Ghana, um, in the agri sector? Like what kind of problems are these farmers facing that people with the knowledge and people with the education can come in and help to solve? There? Um, I wouldn't say it's only an issue with Ghana. It's an issue everywhere. The biggest mm -hmm. problem that farmers have is finance because they're not able to have finance. And um, these are people, if they walked into a bank, they're expected to pay 24, 22%. They don't have that kind of um, leeway to take that kind of money, okay? Um, secondly, if they were to go and get the finances from, uh, you know, the uh, non-governmental organizations that are willing to give them, they're going to be able to write proposals. They have, they don't have that uh, knowledge in terms of how to do it. So I'm sure they can reach out to people within um, the continent or in the diaspora who can help them to write these amazing proposals, um, you know, and, and direct them to where these monies are. Um, secondly, also is, um, I think, you know, support to them to buy local. You know, if the policies are going to encourage more of importation, you know, then how do you expect to compete? Um, I'll give an example. In Ghana, we continue to import tomatoes. Tomatoes, red, fresh tomatoes. Yet we can grow tomatoes here. When our farmers were growing their tomatoes, their tomatoes were dying. Um, they had post-harvest losses because nobody was buying it because logistics is an issue. How do you move you know, the tomatoes from the farmer to the market? You know, and then how, Because these are things that you can't keep for too long. They're going to rot. So we need to start advocating for support. I mean, I see some amazing young guys. Um, I mean, there's a guy called David who's doing an amazing job uh, in terms of poultry now. Um, there's another group called So Organic. They're growing organic food um, and they have markets every weekend, you know, for people who are interested in doing in buying organic. So you're seeing it slowly coming in. The challenge is, and again, more so for Ghana and across Africa, is that 
we are too into smallholder farming and not large-scale farming. We need to start collaborating again as farmers. We need to move into large-scale. Um, and more importantly for me is that how can we make farmers part of businesses? So if, for example, an investment is going to come into Ghana, for example, for you know doing, um, let's say, chocolate, or it wants to do uh, corn, you know, grow maize and then convert it into uh, Doritos or whatever else it is. Can we make sure that the farmer that is supplying you or the cooperative of farmers of maize farmers gets at least 5% stake in your business? Okay. What that does is it means that this farmer doesn't have to go looking for different people to sell to. He's guaranteed that as he sells to, he's guaranteed of an income. And he also ensures that He's got to be price competitive because this is now his business as well. He owns a 5% stake in that business. So that way he also becomes, you know, um, cognizant of the fact to make profits. He's got to give his best, make the logistic uh, supplies a partner in the business. Give him a 1%, give him a 2% in the business. So this way you're creating a system of players. You know, it's not about being selfish and saying, hey, we've come in and we're investors and we're putting out this huge fruit uh, processing company. But then who you're not involving the people who are supplying you the fruits. How can you make them become a part of this is the only way you make everyone become a part of the wealth and everyone become rich in the process. Yeah. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, so you, you mentioned like banks charge like 22% interest. Uh, that is unheard of. I mean, in Rwanda, it's like 18%, uh, 20% as well, you know, still high right, right. Um, yeah so in America it, I mean it's it, depending on your on your credit score you know like six percent is pretty conservative six um, percent like if you have a really good credit score you you, you pay like three percent on on your on your loan um, so I, I, like why do banks charge too much in in Africa? Um, I guess because they've also got to borrow this money, right? They're getting it. They're getting it from. I mean, we've got to understand. It's not. Um, I mean, they can't just wake up all of a sudden and say, "Hey, we're going to put a cap." I mean, Kenya um, did a, a, a recent one. I think it was two years. Our president went and put a cap, a ceiling, and then what happened was that banks decided not to give loans because they weren't making money on it. It's all about making making money. But then again, you've got to understand um, the system. It's like doing if you got into petroleum. You know, literally, um, the pre petrol prices, like, for example, if we look at, um, was it last month or two months ago, whatever, um, the petroleum global players had no one, they could not sell petrol to anyone, okay? And it reached, I mean, was it from 60 to $20 per barrel? Uh, totally unheard of. Did you see prices of fuel? I mean, you're sitting in America right now, but ask anybody yeah, in Africa, very price of <laughs> petroleum remained, you know? Yeah. Why? Because there's this whole cost that is being added into it, you know, all these hidden, hidden costs. They've got to pay for the debt. They've got to pay for the borrowing. They've got to pay for this. So by the time it gets to you, you're still going to pay your dollar, you know, if not more um, to buy that petrol. So it's the same thing um, with the banking industry. By the time the government is going and borrowing money internationally, and then what gets based, based, uh, sent down to um, the government uh, uh, banks, and then how do they translate it to the banks? Everybody's adding up what they need to do. And then also the risk factor. You know, there's this assumption you lend money, which sometimes is true. You're not going to get it back. So this is how it works. I would rather, and that's why you're seeing, I don't know about other markets, but there are a lot of Ponzi schemes. And that's the reason why you're finding 
young guys. I mean, we had a big one in in uh, in Ghana, and it was called Men's Gold, and you should check it out. And this guy, um, I mean, now people are crying. There are people who invested a million um, CDs. You've got people with 100,000 CDs. And basically all they did was, it's a guy who said, listen, I will um, take money from you and I will invest it in gold and you will get an investment. And people were getting money. They would go every month and, you know, um, collect. Then we have, um, in Swahili, we call it Chama, you know, societies. Where, and I'm sure they, in, in Ghana, they call it Susu. I don't know what they call it in other markets where people come together and they create a pot. And every month somebody puts in, you know, 100 um, or 200. And Kenya's done it fantastically where people have come together and every month they contribute. And it was supposed to be a circle. So, for example, this month the money comes to me. Next month it goes to another person. So I might have issues to pay school fees or whatever. So it was community, um, you know, coming in together. But what they've done is they've taken that money, they've gone and built property with it, they're renting it out. So they've turned it into a business. So it means each one coming in into this African pot and putting in whatever they can. Um, so there's now things like that slowly happening, you know, where you have angel investors coming in, um, different players coming in and saying, let us come in together and put in whatever we can to be able to help you um, to, to move to the next level. Because you've got to understand, and I'm not saying this with any disrespect to, to men, but when you invest in women, um, you know that they will pay back because they have a fear of what it's going to do to their children. Um, you know, to um, if they don't pay, then their home gets taken away. So they tend to be better, better borrowers and better people to pay back. Um, and it's unfortunate. It is unfortunate, and that's the reason you find a lot of schemes now coming up. You know, um, of people finding innovative ways to to be able to get money um, for their businesses. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so for people who want to come in and invest, uh, invest in in Africa, how can they do their research? Like, are there uh, any, you know, any places where they can start their research? Let's say if they wanted to invest in agriculture in Ghana, how can they go about making sure they, you know, find the right people and um, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of information. Sometimes you don't know which one's true, which one's not. Um, obviously, there there are the government institutions that you can look up to. Like if it was Ghana, you would look at uh, into the Ghana Investment Promotion Council, who are online. You'll find information. You can come to the Association of Ghana Industries. I'm the chair of the agribusiness sector. Um, you know, you reach out and you say, "Hey, listen, I want to come into agriculture. What is your views in this sector?" Um, you know, where we 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 are there to help you. I mean, I'll give an example: the shear sector. You know, shea butter is, again, just like the cocoa butter, which has become a big thing. The shea is another big thing. And, um, you know, there's a, a great guy in, in Ghana. In fact, there are two of them. One is a guy called Senor Poli and uh, Peter Lovett. And these are the gurus of shea. You know, you talk yeah. to them about shea in Nigeria or shea in Benin or shea in Ghana. They have the answers. You just have to build your network. You need to know who to go and ask. And so people will, will help you and they will be able to, to give you the right network. You just need to ask and, and, and try and find out. I mean, we only hooked up on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. And I'm sure there's other ways. LinkedIn is a fantastic um, um, tool and, and application for people to, to collaborate, to get to know each other and be able to, to create synergies. Um, yeah. So I definitely think this would be a first, first stop. Great. Yeah, definitely. People who want to connect with other Africans on the continent, check out LinkedIn.com. 
and you know pretty much search anyone <laughs> that, yeah. uh, you can That's also search by industry uh for me i search by you know founders or entrepreneurs that i want to talk to Uh, that's how I, fa- <laughs> I found you. Well, I've learned uh, something new from you because I don't do any searches. Everything oh, I do the search. My LinkedIn uh, is very organic. Um, yeah. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, I put a post, uh, mm. I think it was last week when I was appointed uh, the president for the Women Indian Chamber of Commerce. And um, I got 40,000 views. I mean, it started mm. at 600, then it went up and I was like, oh my goodness. Why are people looking for me? You know, um, I didn't think I was important or relevant. I don't think I am, but it just yeah. felt good to know that. Wait a second, I must have done something right, or I must have yeah, hashtagged um, a country that has a populace of one billion people, and that's the reason everybody came out um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to look for me. Um, yeah. It felt good because I've made such amazing um, connections. I mean, with you now, and I'm so happy. You know, you come from a land that I love, um, and yeah, I think it's there is a lot of um, opportunity so i'm going to do what you do now and i'm going to go out and start using the search yeah i mean if you wanted to do business in rwanda and you didn't know anybody there you can start with linkedin and just look for people oh, I have in, your... in rwanda <laughs> yeah, yeah i know you do but for people <laughs> yeah, for anybody, yeah rwanda is the place to be right now yeah. and um i'm just very happy and i want to just say thank you to you your people your president um uh, for setting the tone for what africa really can do um you know and what it can achieve you you've actually shown that it is possible and the same thing you know to the president of um, Eritrea um you know and Ethiopia they have shown they are perfect examples of what can be uh, can be done um and yeah it, it's all possible yeah absolutely um you know Rwanda has been through a lot and uh Rwandan people are very resilient um and you know working so hard to get to where Rwanda is of course our leader and and uh you know involving uh, women in the uh in process the of developing yeah. the country uh you know Rwanda is very huge on like innovation and technology and also branding you know branding itself absolutely uh, I mean, come on you're the only country that went and sponsored football you know at global well everyone's like what the hell are they doing you know uh, but nobody thought about how strategic that was it is strategic it is and you know people are quick to judge and before they even understand because yeah. if you and, and i would like to uh listen to you know your take on that because the the western media w- was you know bashing Rwanda for doing that yeah, uh, but western media does not expect africa to be anything but you really? know a, a content of yeah. people rolls on their hand and flies yeah. flying over their heads yeah. um for reason But, but I think you know that was a very important move and uh, you know for for African countries to uh, prosper and to also be self self uh, reliant and independent we really have to show the kind of value that we have for other people you know instead of getting aid um, we can show what we can give in terms of value Absolutely. And, you know and, I mean, and look at yeah. you um, look at South Africa. Jim I know in my time I mean you're younger than me um I'm in, in my 40s and I remember the time when you know discussions of apartheid in South Africa was happening 
you know. Yeah. Um, I worked on an amazing campaign in South Africa um, for a, a joint venture for Wilma Continental. And um, the MD and the, the campaign was worked with the, with an agency called Brainwave out of Kenya. And we came up with this amazing emotional campaign and we used, you know, artifacts of South Africa right down to the Vu, Zilla and everything. It was during the World Cup. And we, we showcased that, um, you know, they talk about it being a rainbow nation. It's supposed to be about all the colors and whatever. Today, how many people remember anything about the apartheid? Because South Africa was able to quickly change. I mean, South Africa to date have what they call, it's called the IMC group. And what these people do with government is they immediately go online. Whenever they find any negativity, they quickly pull it down or they will make sure that, you know, in the search it plays, uh, goes right at the bottom and they try to put in positive um, comments up there. And the yeah. MD of this company wrote to me and um, uh, his name is Feroz. And I remember the email he sent me and he said, Fatima, thank you so much. Um, you know, this is the first time as a South African, I feel I could stand up to the national anthem and sing it with pride, you know? And it, it really felt good that an MDO, an organization could write that to me because all I did was just create a, a marketing communication that was supposed to resonate with the people. Um, today, people don't remember much about apartheid. I mean, they know it's part of their history, but South Africa has presented itself, you know, in a different way. Look at Rwanda. Rwanda right now is the businessmen's play field. You know, you yeah. think Africa, the first place you're thinking now is how can I get into Rwanda? What can I do in Rwanda? You guys are creating mobile phones, you know, <laughs> um, you're, you're doing stuff in, in Ghana. We, we've got a car, uh, uh, Kantanka, you know, uh, who thought that cars were going to be created here as well. So we are doing things in our own way. Rwanda's got the biggest solar farm, you know, happening. Things that people don't know. And this is why I'm so happy you're doing this, uh, Fouad, because we have to tell our stories. We've got to change this picture that people think. And like you say, with what Rwanda did with that football sponsorship, um, yes, people might think that's a lot of money. Uh, it was a lot of money, but it was strategic because yeah. it was not putting Rwanda on the map. Okay. Yeah. And just by those footballers speaking about Rwanda, people started understanding who Rwanda was because otherwise Rwanda was going to be seen as some um, international um, musician or somebody who came to adopt a child out of Rwanda. Yeah. You that's not what it's about. There's, it's more. there's yeah, there is a lot in Rwanda. There's a lot to do. Hats off to what you guys did. Um, hats yeah. off to what you continue doing. Um, and I really wish, um, you know, I, I say this um, with all due respect that the rest of the Africans could look at what you guys are doing. Um, forget whatever they think about in terms of negativity or the political angle or whatever it is, but just look at the good that you're doing as a country and see how can we emulate. What is it that we can do to um, to do exactly what you're doing, you know, and, yeah. and make it better for our people? So if you can do it, we can do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that was a bold move uh, to sponsor like one of the top <laughs> leagues in the world. Right. But, you know, uh, for someone who understands like marketing, um, I mean, you, you that's your area, but you know how strategic that was to put Rwanda on the map, uh, but also thinking long-term, you know, thinking long-term, how are we gonna keep getting aid from people? What about we give a little value to these people? What about they pay to come and, you know, see what we have, you know, yes. give them a great experience. And then this will be sustainable long-term because when these people come to our country, you know, they have a great experience. They enjoy the country. They see what's possible. You know, they take pictures. They share those pictures. Yes. Uh, they go and tell their families and their friends about Rwanda. 
that's going to bring um, more people to the country. And that circle is going to keep repeating. But if we just sit around and, you know, wait for these donors, I don't know how much money that, you know, European you know? and the U.S. gives what to I love about, I love but, about Nigerians is Nigerians say it the way it is. They don't, they don't mince their words. And I was yeah. sitting in a meeting, it was an African, the Continental Free Trade meeting. And um, one of the chairs of the Nigerian um, Association uh, in, in the meeting said something. And he said, who told you, where did it ever say that Africans cannot uh, trade with one another? Ne they've never said it anywhere. There was, there was never that discussion. So who is the one who stopped you, you know? And then he said um, that what is interesting is that People, you know, the colonial masters or whoever else it is, put you in the grave in the first place, okay? Now, um, they're trying to get you out of the grave and that gutter by lending you money or giving you something in return. But when they're doing that, they're not taking both your feet out of the grave or the gutter. They're letting you remain with one in the gutter because as you take, you're still stuck because you're going to repay it back, you yeah. know? And I said that, I was like, wow, I, sometimes I want to be a Nigerian because they just say it the way it is. You know, they just say it. Yeah, that's uh, great. So any advice for young people who want to start businesses? Because, uh, you know, I want to fo focus this brand on entrepreneurship and empowering African entrepreneurs and allowing them to tell stories. Um, and uh, do you have advice for, you know, young entrepreneurs who want to set up their businesses? What kind, what, what kind of things would they keep in mind? How would they frame their, their mindset? to prepare them for success? Um, look, I don't want to say that, you know, um, I mean, our favorite, Lupita, also saying your dreams are valid. I don't wish people and tell them your dreams come true and every dream, uh, you know, you have can come true because nightmares are also dreams. People don't realize that. So sometimes you tell people, I wish your dream comes true and hello, you know, you have a nightmare and that comes true as well. Um, what I would like um, entrepreneurs to, to um, work on is um, conviction. Okay, um, conviction that you can do this, conviction that you, you know that it's possible, but always look at it from the angle of what problem are you intending to solve? Because everything that you do must solve a problem, okay? Um, and if you come up with that perspective and also have a learning mindset, no one, let no one cheat you, whether it's a role model or whoever you have out there, that they have the answers to everything, that they are know-it-alls, they keep learning as well. Um, you know, read, 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 and learn as much as you can. There is no right model. There's no right approach um, to doing anything. Um, as long as you have the passion, you know, you must have passion within you um, to be able to believe that bullshit your way through, you know, if, if that's a way to say it. But you've got to believe that you can do it um, and, and go out there, but answer a problem. And if you know that you're answering a problem, then nothing stops you into making it in, you know, coming into a realization. Um, second thing would be collaboration. Collaboration, I think, is crucial. We need to move away from this frog in the well mentality and think that it's all about me, myself, and I. Um, we need to grow and we need to grow together, you know. Um, and if we are able to do it together, then we're able to bring in more people um, on, on onto the journey. Um, don't believe and don't wait for the, the seat at the table or to be called onto the table. I suggest you bring in your own table, your own chair and your own friends around that table and create your own community. Um, create people that 
um, where you know you have a weakness, let somebody else who has a strength in that area become a part of what you are uh, looking at building and doing. And together you can be able to achieve it. So go out there. I, I just believe, um, you know, you hold the paintbrush, you hold the canvas, um, and you can just create whatever it is that you want. Um, do not um, be scared of failures. Do not be scared of being ridiculed. Um, do not be scared of being torn. Um, you will have a lot of naysayers. You will have a lot of haters. Um, but that should become your stepping stone to the next level. Thank you so much. That's an, that's incredible advice right there. Uh, yeah. So wrap, I'm wrapping this up uh, for people who want to connect with you and learn from you, learn about your work. How can they do so? Where can they find you? I think the best place is uh, LinkedIn. Um, I'm Fatima Ali Mohammed and uh, African Brand Warrior is what I do. And once you, I respond to every message that I get. And then through that, I exchange my number and my email and um, we stay connected. Great. Thank you so much, Fatima. It was a great pleasure having you, chatting with you. You shared a lot of knowledge. Um, you know, good luck with everything that you're doing and keep being an African brand warrior. Thank you for Thank you for having me. I'm grateful. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.